Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome along to a brand new episode of Writer's Routine, where this week we are chatting to Sarah Marsh. Her new novel is a sign of her own, telling a side of one of history's most famous figures that you've probably never heard before. We chat to Sarah about thoroughly researching real figures from the past, also why it took a long 12 years for her to get it done, and with that, how you ever really know whether a story is actually told. The book is only finished when someone comes and actually physically takes it off you and says, you know, no more. And I think it does feel a bit like that. You know, you you will always think that there's one more draft to do or something can be tweaked. And, and you know, and of course, when readers start reading it and they have their own thoughts and then you start wondering, oh, maybe I should have changed that. And maybe, you know, so there's a point when it's done because if you, you know, if it's getting published, it, but I think there's a, a slower process of sort of letting go of it and recognising that it's now a separate thing from you. There is more with Sarah Marsh in this week's Writer's Routine. Welcome along to the show. My name is Dan Simpson. Thank you for being there, for following, subscribing and listening. Uh, This is where we take a look through an author's working day. We see how they get stuff done, how they plan their life and other work and their space and their day uh, around giving themselves the best chance of getting words on the page. And this week's episode of Writer's Routine is brought to you by the new true crime podcast, Who is the Cheese Wire Killer? And I think it's perfect for you. Because if you love crime writing and storytelling, which I think you probably do, and if you love podcasts, which, well, I hope you do, this will be right up your street. Who is the cheese wire killer? It's all about a murder committed in 1983, completely unsolved. It's now regarded as one of Scotland's most gruesome unsolved murders. And across five episodes, you go into the heart of this live investigation. It's going on. You can be a part of it with interviews from the senior investigating officer, forensic scientists, psychologists, uh, family members, friends of the victim, too. It's a mixture of documentary and drama. It is a classic who has done it case that has baffled the police for over 40 years. And you are there as the killer is still on the run. And a few months ago, the police announced the biggest step forward in the case for 40 years. And you can learn, discover as you go. It's such a brilliant twist on on true crime podcasts, right? 
there are a lot out there, and this is completely unique because you are right there in the centre. Try and uncover who is the cheese wire killer. You can find the series now and listen to the whole lot wherever you get your podcasts. Search for who is the cheese wire killer and try and solve one of the most famous unsolved murders ever. So this week we're chatting to Sarah Marsh. Sarah was shortlisted for the Lucy Cavendish Prize in 2019, selected for the London Library Emerging Writers Programme a year later in 2020. Sarah has a master's in creative writing and now a novel out. And it's taken 12 years to get to shelves. It's called A Sign of Her Own. It's all about Ellen Lark, who is on the verge of marriage when she receives an unexpected visit from Alexander Graham Bell, he of the telephone. The story Ellen knows about Bell, however, runs much deeper. Ellen is deaf, and Bell's views on those who are deaf is something very rarely spoken of. Uh, Ellen has a story to tell about how Alexander Graham Bell cut her off from a community, tried to ostracise her almost, and other pupils at a time where sign language was trying to be forced out. And uh, Sarah is deaf. We recorded this chat on Zoom through a mixture of lip reading and closed captioning software, and that is why this episode is slightly shorter than others. It requires a huge amount of focus and concentration for Sarah to lip read for Sarah to lip read for long periods of time, and that means that we've got right to the nub of everything. Really, you can hear how important it was for Sarah to write this story, why it took her twelve years to tell how much she researched real people from history how she used a fictional character to tell an unheard part of the past we also talk about how books uniquely helped her when she was growing up and there is a full transcription of this episode available over on our website writersroutine.com if you take a look you can see it there front and center and we start things off with what sarah sees around her in the place where she sits down to write so i work in my living room and I move uh, between two ends of the room. Uh, One end has a big window with trees outside and I I like to sit on the sofa and a a patch of sunlight, Um, not so much in January. Uh, And then when it's time to do some editing or or some hard writing, I move to the darker end of the room and I sit sit at the table under a slightly menacing giant Swiss cheese plant. Good to have that next to me. Why do you move to the dark part of the room for serious writing just instinctively i think maybe that's where i'll concentrate best not not no daydreaming out of the window um it also happens to be where we have the table but yes it's, it's not so easy to daydream i think at the dark end of the room <laughs> <laughs> and looking around you is there anything practical that reminds you what story you're there to write about well, I have a bookcase next to the table and on that bookcase I have what I call my death shelf. So um, the book I wrote is about Alexander Graham Bell and you mentioned the telephone that gives the deaf perspective because he was a deaf, an educator of deaf people. And so on my death shelf I have authored by, books by deaf authors like Bauer Novick, the poet Raymond Antrobus, Ilya Kaminsky, uh, Louise Stern, a great graphic novel by C.C. Bell called El Defo. So, um, so they're all to hand if I need them for inspiration. What about notes and points and ideas? Do you write them down around you anywhere? 
No, I mean, I, I don't have my own writing space. I'm definitely very much, I kind of hot desking a little bit in, in, in my house. I've got two kids as well. So kind of moving around, around their uh, creative mess as well as, um, trying to find a place to make my own creative mess. So I have notebooks and I try to be quite organized about notebooks and keeping them in one place. But even my notebooks tend to sort of be a bit of an, you know, I can never quite remember which notebook I've written what in. But um, but I try and bring that to the table as well, the, the pile of notebooks. Uh, and what software do you use to write? We get quite geeky and quite nerdy. So I wonder what, what software you use. So I have always used Scrivener, uh, which I think I think is quite popular with writers. I mean, it's very appealing because you can organise chapters and all your research notes and you can store your earlier drafts and they're there with a in a folder for you. So I, I've always found Scrivener good. I also like with Scrivener, I write in a... I type right in a very sort of functional font like Corian New, quite large font, which helps me remember it's all just draft. And then there's that nice moment when I can export it into Word and turn it into a nice font like Garamond or Time and, you know, try to see the whole thing through fresh eyes again and then go back to <laughs> Scrivener and, and make the changes. So I've, I've done that process these years now. There's definitely no typical day. But I think partly because the novel I wrote took me a very, very long time. It took me over 10 years to write. And I think my life changed quite a lot over that time. And so my routine as well uh, changed a lot. So I think in the early days, I definitely had a routine. I got up early every morning and wrote before work. And usually there was some time at the weekend. And it, yeah, it was very reassuring to have that routine because I felt I was always writing, even if, if I wasn't actually making that much progress. Uh, then when I had kids and I was working as well and that there was no time really. So I wrote in snatches of time in my lunch break. But I think it was it was also I had to start thinking in terms of habits rather than routine. So I had to I, I tried to develop certain habits that just meant I always did something every day. So for example, it would it might be making notes on my phone or I would um I have a Kobo or Kindle now when I would then something I've been working on to that so I could read on the e-reader and make some notes or just finding ways to make sure I did a bit every day I think I and this is I'm sure really common with most writers I think my biggest fear was having a block of time and sitting down the page at last and then not being able to write anything so so um I tried to make sure that my brain was always turning over with the story and the plot and um getting a bit done every day and I mean, it took me a very long time, but it did, it did all add up eventually. <laughs> when you did have big blocks of time that you could write in, uh, how, how easy was it for you to sit there and get straight into the story? I think, I mean, I think with what I was saying about the habits, it was always trying to kind of trick the writing into being. So I think as long as I was keeping my brain moving on it, I you know, would make myself some notes about what I was going to write and then I could sit down and write it. And I've always liked that trick that I know other writers do, which is never quite getting, never stopping before you finish. So even if you stop halfway through a sentence or halfway through a paragraph, but stop when you've got a little bit more that you, you know, you really want to get onto because then when you come back to it, you can pick it up again. So I think having having a sense that you're not trying to completely 
complete it in that period of time and that you're going to leave a sort of string for you to pick up again. I think I found that really helpful as well. Um, yeah. Yeah. Over 12 years of writing a book, can you just tell us about your emotions through those 12 years? I imagine sometimes you would have been really depressed and despairing about this story, other times very excited. It might get published. Can you just try and tell us about that 12-year path? Oh, that's, um, yeah, I, I can try. It's, uh, oh, it's such a long time, isn't it? And I think it was interspersed for me, I think, with things like, you know, having the kids and stuff. So it was, uh, had lots of other up and downs uh, alongside with the, with the writing. But uh, I, I remember, you know, you know, those intense periods of frustration that I think all writers get from just sort of, you know, feeling really stuck in the book um, or not being able to move it on. And I remember particularly the middle of the book, that sort of two-third point. I think I spent years sort of hanging out on that bit of the book, wondering how I was going to get get beyond it. So uh, I, I love the rewriting process. So I think towards the end, and when I started working with my agent as well, and, you know, there's that wonderful feeling at the end that you know what you're doing and, you know, it picks up momentum and, and that rewriting process. But I think... I think now I quite miss the very beginning of the process when you have all that freedom to create the story and it can feel a bit frightening because you don't quite know where it's going. But but I think I'm quite looking forward to getting back to that bit, having spent so long at the, the editing end of things. This story is so personal to you and it's taken you 12 years. How has this next part being so writing another book having to come up with another idea how different was that than it was when you first started writing 12 years ago hmm. yeah it it does feel i think because you're i'm still you're still sort of letting go a little bit of the first book and i think having been so clear on what the concept was for the first book you know, you've, I feel quite keen with the second book to have the same, really, and have that real clear sort of sense of what it's about. And it does feel quite frightening, I think, going back. Um, you know, I said I'm looking forward to it, but it does feel quite frightening, I think, going back to that point where, you yeah, really, it's so open what the story might be. I, I guess after 12 years of writing, how did you finally know it was done? How could you see... Right, this is the end. Hmm. I think I think it was Anne Enright who said that the book is only finished when someone comes and actually physically takes it off you and says, you know, no more. And I think it does feel a bit like that. You know, you, you will always think that there's one more draft to do or something can be tweaked. And, and you know, and of course, when readers start reading it and they have their own thoughts and then you start wondering, oh, maybe I should have changed that. And maybe, you know, so I think at some point, I, I don't think there's ever a point. There's a point when it's done because if you, you know, it's getting published, it, it you know, it has a deadline and it's done. But I think there's a, a slower process of sort of letting go of it and recognising that it's now a separate thing from you. And um, and I, I don't think that happens overnight, actually. So, uh yeah. Can you tell us about 
your relationship with books when you were growing up? I'm just aware, as someone who is deaf, maybe uh, books would have given you something different than they might not give everyone else when you are young and understanding the world. Yeah, it's an interesting point. I mean, I can only really speak to my own particular experience as a deaf person because I think deaf people are are all very different. It's a very varied experience. And, um, you know, I think for me, yes, I loved reading as a kid and written words always felt very safe for me because, you know, I'm I'm a lip reader, so spoken spoken speech is, is quite a slippery business I'm never quite sure what people are saying whereas you know books it's all written down it gives you this wonderful insight and all the nuances there for you to see with your eyes that that's not everybody's experience um I don't think but but I certainly found for me that yeah books were a place I I went to here's a cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous to your contracts, they said, "What the f- are you talking about? You insane Hollywood ass." So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 upfront for 3 months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for a limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and t-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part, for every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. One of Scotland's most notorious unsolved murders. To think that someone could turn a cheese wire into a garrote and take someone's life. The level of violence, the uncertainty and the randomness frightened people. She always thought the killer was going to come back after her. Society needs to find that killer. Who is the cheese wire killer? Listen to the full series now wherever you get your podcasts. You can hear more of the series, Who is the Cheese Wire Killer? It is sponsoring the podcast for a little while. Place yourself front and centre into the investigation of one of the most famous murders ever. It is unsolved, and you can be there to try and discover what happened. Have a listen wherever you get your shows. It's called Who is the Cheese Wire Killer? And you can sponsor the show if you'd like. You can support us over at patreon.com forward slash writers routine, and it doesn't take a lot just a few dollars a month really helps us carry on it helps me keep bringing you these chats with all forms of authors the best in the world as often as we can and i know that times are tight so really anything that you can pledge over at patreon really goes a long way for that you get 
bonus episodes there is merch there is content there is videos and as i say there is even a way for your book to sponsor this show so if you've written something if you've put it out there and i know that the the, the world of publishing uh, it, it's such a dream to get into but it's uh, so competitive so tight to find space to find people to talk about it well let me do that for you we've got this huge community on the show and um, so a lot of eyes and ears i'm sure are very excited to hear about what you've done and you could support, you can pledge to help us out if you've learned anything along the way over at patreon.com forward slash writers routine. I'd love to see you there. Let's get back to it then with Sarah Marsh chatting about her debut, a sign of her own. We talk about her lead, Ellen, about making her genuine, authentic, and how she used Ellen to look into this barely known part of history. Also hear how much Sarah considered language, how she used the words on the page. And we pick things up talking about the star and the very first idea that she had for a sign of her own. Just to give a bit of background, as I said, Alexander Graham Bell was the lesser known side of that history is that he was an educator of deaf people. And in particular, he promoted oralism. He promoted speech training. Um, it, it's an, an impressive history. Uh, and he often demonstrated his deaf students uh, who were usually quite young, they're usually young women. And I read an account of one of his demonstrations in which, yeah, one of his demonstrations, and I, I just thought I wanted to completely retell that from the perspective of the student because it was, it was the account was just, he was enraptured about what he had achieved, but, you know, there was no thought <laughs> about what the, the student was experiencing. So that I think that moment was quite a big one for me. And I, I wrote that theme in the book. It's one of the earliest themes in the book. It's still in the book, being written many times. Um, and it shapes the way the book ends as well. When you have that idea, what do you do next as a writer? Do you go and research? Do you just start writing? What was the next step? Uh, I think by this point, I'd already started the research in a way. I come across, you know, I, as I said, not much is known about this history. And I, I'm deaf myself and I grew up deaf. And um, but it's always been in, and I have deaf family members, so it's always been in, in the family, sort of, with some deafness, kind of a medical thing that needed to be fixed. And so it wasn't something we ever talked about. We didn't embrace it. Um, that's changed a lot now. Uh, so, so I started in a general way reading about this history because I was so fascinated by it. And then, and then you know, I came across the, the, the particular demonstration I told you about. And so, <laughs> so I think that research process was, uh, you know, I think I, ha- I, I think I initially started with this sort of chaotic sense of curiosity and, you know, reading very widely on trying to get all the different perspectives on Bell so that, you know, the thing that hadn't been written about much, which which, which was his work with deaf students, um, you know, trying to feel what the gap in that story was, and then then uh, getting the more specific information to illustrate that gap. But it's always a back and forth between the big picture and the small details, and trying to get that balance between you know the research informing the story and the the story shaping the research and. I didn't research first and write later. I kind of, re- what I researched and wrote evolved together. Uh, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, talking about Bell, y- you give a side of him that not many people know about. 
and some of that is awful. Uh, how how did you make that? Uh, how did you go about making that authentic and doing the research for that? before you you tell people this side of his character so the book is narrated by a young deaf woman she's a fictional character but um i sort of she's inspired by some of his real students including actually his wife who uh mabel hubbard who was deaf and one of his pupils initially uh so there was there was some information in the historical record to inform that perspective but i think the book is very is very it's very much written from a deaf perspective and what it what it might have been like to be one of his pupils and to be navigating, you know, the late 19th century uh, environment as a, a young deaf woman at that time. So and some of that sort of informed by my own experience. It's a lot about lip reading. Some of that, as I say, is, is researching his pupils and sort of deaf people's experiences at that time, the information I could find. Let's talk about Ellen. Um, she is inspired by a, a lot of different women, as you said. How did you go about making her unique and her own character and very truthful whilst being inspired? Uh, well, I think I spent a very... She, I mean, she... Either, as a kind of protagonist and a voice, she came to me very early on. So I spent a very long time with her. And I think a lot, a lot with creating any character, that, you know, they don't just pop up on the page, fully emerge. They're just, you know, they like the book, they get refined in the, the editing and the rewriting. Um, but I think it was just being... I mean, you know, it was just thinking about what she really wanted um, from her life and how, how I think society conspired to make her want that and then how it changes over the course of the book. I mean, I think that sense of trying to find her own personal truth um, was, yeah, was very important in the book. But I think, you know, writing first-person narratives are quite hard because, you know, so much of the character is on the page, sort of, you know, and you, you don't, you can't always say, yeah, you have to find a careful balance between saying everything they're thinking and feeling and not saying enough. So I, I do think that that took a lot of rewriting and editing to get to get perfect. Um, and I, I hope there's some, of, in terms of authenticity, I hope there's some of my own experience in there that, that come through, but, but also she's a separate character, of course, and it's a very different time. And um, yeah, that, that was a case of research and rewriting and really clarifying what she as a character wanted. So that's a rather long answer. When you first started, how much did you know about the whole plot, the beginning the middle and the end. How much did you know about the whole thing? Not much at all. I mean, really, really, I went into it with a very, very open sense of what the story would be. I've always found beginnings okay because I, I feel there's a lot of energy going into the story. The middle's always hard. I didn't really have a sense of the ending until quite late in the process. 
partly because I spent a long time in the middle. But um, once I had the ending, it really did bring the whole novel into focus uh, and, and what it was trying to do. But I'm, I hope I don't do this for the next novel. I feel I might. I'm not a huge plotter. I, I, mean, I'm, I know some writers are really good at sort of creating their plots and mapping them out. I've, I've never been able to do that. But I hope it's something I learn to do because I can really see the benefits of, of doing that. So, it, so it's on my, it's something I hope to do with the next book, but didn't quite manage to achieve with this book. <laughs> and how much thought did you give about the actual words you were using? How poetic and beautiful they needed to be? Or first draft, did you write anything and think, I'll come back to that later? Again, I think that's something I hope to do differently with the next book. I think, I really think, I, I see the benefits in writing drafts quickly and just writing them through and rewriting, rewriting. I spent a lot of time, I think, on sections and perfecting sections. And of course, a lot of those sections would get thrown out the window because, because the plot evolved. So that's how I did that book. I'm not sure it's necessarily how I'll do another book. I think... I mean, people have told me about the book that it captured the sense of the language at the time and, you know, quite an Edwardian sense of, or late Victorian sort of sense of of, um, of writing, which I didn't intend to, I mean, you know, I wanted it to feel like a book, a feel of the time, but I'm, I'm not quite sure how I how I did that, really. I think it, it must have just been a slightly through osmosis and, you know, and reading, reading text from that time, so... That wasn't entirely a conscious process, but... Uh, Last question. How important was it for you to write this story, for your debut to be about a deaf woman? Uh, I I just wonder. It was important personally to me. I felt like I needed to write this story. I I didn't necessarily allow myself, certainly in the early days, to think about what it might mean for it to be published. But I was, I just was just hooked on writing this story, really. Um, and I think because I mentioned I have deaf family members, so my mother is deaf and my two aunts, and it's not something we've ever discussed. And I think the things that never get talked about in families, and this is true of a whole range of issues, often the things that, you know, get passed down. And, and there was a certain sort of, silence about the topic that I think I inherited, you know, not so much silence of deafness, which can be a bit of a cliche, but the silence of just not talking about it. And I think it was really an urge to just do something with that and this book with my answer to it. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, yeah. So I think it was important to me in that sense. Um, then, you know, yeah, things changed, I guess, as it became closer toward publication. And I thought, well, you know, I hope this book will, you know, have have a, a useful message or some insights that will be um, useful for readers. And that is it for this week's episode of Writer's Routine. Thank you so much to Sarah Marsh for coming on the podcast, the debut brand new book. It's called A Sign of Her Own. It is out right now. And this week's episode has been supported by Who Is The Cheese Wire Killer brand new podcast true crime puts you front and center in the heart of one of the most famous unsolved scottish crimes 
ever. Try and discover it yourself. Search for Who is the Cheese Wire Killer wherever you get your podcasts. I will see you next week with a brand new guest on the show. In the meantime, you can support us, patreon.com forward slash writers routine. You can also drop us a follow on X. We are at Writers Pod there and get in touch with the show using the contact page at writersroutine.com. And there is a full transcription of this episode uh, on our website too. You could read the whole thing uh, however you like. Get to writersroutine.com and I will see you next week with a brand new guest on the show. Until then, bye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.